0: Of the Faith podcast. This is the podcast where we look at individuals from the age of the church who have lived out their faith in a unique or interesting way. People who are giants in the history of Christendom, Hall of Famers, if you will. My name is Robert Daniels, and I'm the host of this podcast. Today we're joined by a very special guest, my wife, Jennifer. She'll help present today's episode as we are profiling our first female subject. Jenny, would you like to quickly introduce yourself?
1: Hey, everybody. As Robert said, my name is Jennifer Daniels, and I'm going to help present today's episode of Giants of the Faith. I am currently the preschool director at our church in Florida, and I love reading my Bible and I love the Lord. So I'm excited to help out today because we are featuring a woman who, like it or not, has had a huge impact on Christianity in America.
0: Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Jennifer. A preacher friend of mine suggested that I should make it known that just because someone is featured on this podcast doesn't necessarily mean I support or endorse all their views. Some folks we discuss on this podcast may hold liberal or unorthodox views on some subjects, and I'm definitely not theologically liberal, but I still think their stories deserve to be told and folks can draw their own conclusions uh, where needed. As Forrest Gump said, that's all I got to say about that. For the third episode running, we're looking at someone born in the 19th century. This time, it's the Canadian-American populist preacher, Amy Semple McPherson, who founded the Foursquare Church. There aren't that many notable things to come out of Canada. Ice hockey and peanut butter probably headline that list, but we won't let that stop us from profiling a Canadian, especially since the bulk of the interesting things she did took place in the United States.
1: Amy was born Amy Elizabeth Kennedy on October 9, 1890, in a tiny village of Salford, Ontario, Canada, to parents James and Mildred Kennedy. Amy grew up as a farm girl attending a Methodist church with her parents. Mildred, or Minnie, was the primary spiritual influence in Amy's life. She was involved in the ministry of the Salvation Army, but always wished she could do more. Before Amy was born, Mildred dedicated her to the Lord's service. Mildred promised to give Amy, quote, unreservedly into your service, that she may preach the word I should have preached, fill the place I should have filled, and live the life I should have lived in thy service. That sounds a lot like Hannah promising to give Samuel into God's service.
0: It does sound a lot like Samuel and Hannah. As a 17-year-old girl in 1907, Amy attended a meeting held by Pentecostal evangelist Robert Simple. Simple's Pentecostal meeting was unlike anything she'd ever experienced. She later said, I had never heard such a sermon. Using the Bible as a sword, he cut the whole word in two. She fell in love with Christ and with Robert all in the same week. Robert was ten years her senior, but the couple were married in 1908. They moved around working in church plants for the first two years of their marriage. Both were ordained into the ministry in 1909, and in January 1910, they left the United States for China as missionaries. They must have been full of hope and optimism as they headed to the Far East to spread the gospel. Amy was pregnant at the time, and spirits were high. The Simples traveled to China by way of the United Kingdom. They stopped in Northern Ireland, where Amy met Robert's family for the first time. And while in Northern Ireland, Robert preached at a revival in Belfast. They continued on to London, England, where they met Cecil Polehill at a gathering of the Pentecostal Missionary Union at the Royal Albert Hall. It was Polehill that invited Amy to preach her first sermon. This wasn't your typical first sermon experience, as there were about 15,000 people in attendance.
1: Wow, that's a lot of people for a first-time preacher. Well, they continued on from London and finally arrived in China in June. Hong Kong was quite an adjustment for Amy. She and Robert shared a small apartment and had to adjust to the Chinese way of doing things, which included a diet of bugs and caterpillars, as well as animals not normally consumed in the West. China in the early 20th century was a place of extreme unrest. At one point, Amy and Robert watched a man being burned to death outside of their apartment window. It's no surprise then that both Amy and Robert contracted malaria shortly after arriving in China. They were hospitalized separately, but were allowed, because of Amy's pregnancy, to spend some time together. Unfortunately, Robert was not to recover and died on August 19, 1910, at just 29 years of age. Amy was a 19-year-old widow and a single mother in a foreign land. Her baby, daughter Roberta Starr Semple, was born in September. The other missionaries encouraged her to return home, and in November, Amy and Roberta left for San Francisco with monies provided by her mother, Minnie.
0: Amy eventually made her way to New York City, where she joined her mother, who was working for the Salvation Army there. While in New York, Amy visited the Glad Tidings Church, where she eventually met Harold McPherson. McPherson was soon head over heels in love and courting Amy toward marriage. Before she would agree to marry, she made Harold promise that if she were called into the ministry, she would heed the call, no matter when or where. Harold agreed to those terms, and they were married February 28, 1912. Harold and Amy moved to the state of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. She didn't meet Trevor Sharp there, but they were happy for a time. They were near Harold's family and had a home for themselves near the sea. Roberta grew strong and all was well. A second child, Rolf McPherson, was born in March 1913. During this time, however, Amy felt an internal nagging to go into evangelistic ministry. In 1914, Amy grew ill and was not expected to live. Her mother prayed and prayed that God would spare Amy so she could fulfill Minnie's promise to give her into the ministry. Amy was placed in hospital in a death room, where those not expected to recover went here amy believed she heard the lord asking her if she would finally relent and enter the ministry seriously she did relent and became instantly pain-free within two weeks she was fully recovered despite his earlier agreements, harold wasn't keen on the idea of amy entering the ministry full-time he expected a housewife but she did not believe she could fulfill that role any longer one day while harold was at work She gathered the children and left for Toronto. She tried to convince Harold to follow her, saying, "'I have tried to walk your way and have failed. Won't you come now and walk my way? I am sure we will be happy.'" But Harold wasn't interested. The couple could not resolve their differences and eventually divorced in 1921, though Harold did briefly join Amy in ministry in 1917. In
1: 1915, Amy began preaching in earnest. Her mother agreed to keep the children so that Amy could dedicate herself to the ministry. She purchased a second-hand tent and traveled all over North America for seven years, often preaching to tens of thousands. She was a media darling, and in 1917, she began publishing The Bridal Call magazine bridal call was part of her effort to change the image of the church from one of hellfire and brimstone to a kinder, gentler one, more focused on the second coming and the bride-bridegroom relationship between
0: Christ and the church. By 1921, Amy began to make plans for a life in ministry apart from that of a traveling evangelist. In 1923, she founded and constructed the Angelus Temple in Los Angeles, California. Amy would preach as many as 21 sermons a week there. The church could hold more than 5,000 souls and was often filled to capacity and beyond.
1: Amy began to refer to her version of Pentecostalism as the four-square gospel based on four ideas. Baptism in the Spirit, Regeneration of the Believer, Divine Healing, and the Second Coming. The four-square movement wasn't confined to the Angelus Temple, Churches began springing up all over the western United States. Amy was a leader in transforming the worship service experience. She integrated lavish stage performances, contemporary music, props, even brass bands into her services. Her services were often a spectacle, and Amy would entertain almost any idea to bring in the crowds. She also embraced radio as a medium for getting her message out, and was eventually heard on over 45 different radio stations across the country.
0: 1926 brought about the most mysterious event of Amy's career in the ministry. On May 18th, she was swimming in Venice, California, when she disappeared. Confusion reigned at the Angelus Temple, where Amy was scheduled to preach. Her mother, Minnie, filled in and told the attendees that Amy was with Jesus. The newspapers were filled with articles about her disappearance and vigils were held at Venice Beach, waiting for her body to wash up on the shore. Two men even died during the search and recovery operations. Stories were spread that Amy had run away with a lover and reported sightings were many. The cranks came out claiming to have information on the disappearance and Amy's whereabouts. There were ransom notes and fake bounties aplenty. On June 23rd, amy made her reappearance she came walking out of the desert in mexico across the arizona border she claimed that she was kidnapped by three men and one woman and held in a shack in mexico for ransom she said they tortured her by cutting her hair and burning her fingers with cigars she asserted that she managed to escape the shack only when the woman left to go shopping with her help Police retraced her steps but could find no shack matching her description, and the supposed kidnappers were never found. Police and other officials doubted her story almost from the start. Grand juries were convened and ended. There were investigations into the possibility that Amy had been staying in a cottage in Carmel-by-the-Sea with a former employee of the Angelus Temple. But no fingerprints or other conclusive evidence could be found to place McPherson at the cottage, and in January 1927, all charges and investigations into the disappearance were dropped. Damage had been done to her reputation, however, and many in the public convicted her of some wrongdoing in their own minds.
1: By the spring of 1927, Amy was back on the road, traveling across the country for a three month tour. Results were mixed, with some stops performing well and others having disappointing attendance. In 1931, Amy married for the third time. This husband was David Hutton, one of the performers at the Angelus Temple. This marriage raised a scandal inside the temple as Amy's previous husband, Harold McPherson, was still living. The marriage wouldn't last long and ended in divorce in 1934.
0: Amy's popularity had waned quite a bit by this time, and in 1937, she surrendered control of her public and private life to the Reverend Giles Knight a business manager at the temple. She did not make appearances without his approval, nor did she receive visitors, even her own children, without his say-so. Her media profile dropped significantly. It's unclear why she gave Knight such control, but Knight remained in command of her until her death of a sleeping pill overdose on September 27, 1944. An inquest ruled out suicide and settled on accidental overdose and liver failure. Her body lay in state at the Angelus Temple for three days, and 45,000 people paid her their respects. She's buried in the Forest Lawn Memorial Park Cemetery in Glendale, California. Her four-square gospel church continues today and has a membership somewhere between 8 and 9 million around the world. The church was run by her son, Rolf, for 44 years after her death. No matter what you think of Amy Simple McPherson, there is no denying the impact she has had on the American church and the Pentecostal movement. Her legacy continues not only in the institutions she founded, but in the manner in which modern worship services are conducted. Well, this concludes another episode of the Giants of the Faith podcast. I hope you enjoyed this brief look into one of the often overlooked giants of 20th century Christianity. I'll provide links in the show notes to the online resources I used while preparing for this episode. And as always, feel free to drop a line to podcast at giantsofthefaith.com with any comments or corrections. I'd like to give a special thank you to my wife, Jenny, for helping make this episode possible. And as always, thank you for listening.